0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 92. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk about disappearing archaeological data again, this time with the author of the paper that we discussed last time. Let's get to it. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast. Paul, how's it going today? Pretty good. How are you doing today, Chris? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, Our guest is somebody who we mentioned was gonna be on the show last time in episode 91, if you heard that one a couple of weeks ago or whatever timeframe you're listening to these on. And he'd written an article, if you want to go back, we'll have it linked in this show as well, but it was all about archaeology's disappearing data, and I'm not going to go into too much of that again right now, because seriously, go back and listen to episode 91, and you can hear Paul and I talk about our thoughts on this article as we're going to discuss it today. But today, we have the author of the article on, and it is Dr. Keith Kinte, and he is going to talk about this article. So, Dr. Keith Kinte, welcome to the show
0: i pleased to be here. Thank you.
1: Before we get into the article, I want to talk about your background just a little bit. What's your background in archaeology? You were a past president of the Society for American Archaeology, right?
0: That's correct. Yeah, I've, I'm a professor at Arizona State University, and I've been there. This is my 32nd year. Before that, I was at UC Santa Barbara, and before that, at the University of Arizona. I do my field work in the southwest U.S., although I've done a bit of work overseas, Uh, mainly around the modern Soviet Union Reservation, and I've been involved uh, and really led the effort from the beginning to create the Digital Archaeological Record.
1: Okay, great. And we talked to uh, people at TDAR before on this podcast a couple years ago, I think.
0: And then I'm also involved in the Coalition for Archaeological Synthesis that I know you Mm -hmm. had a podcast on not, not too long ago.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. on the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Yeah. Right. Well, the article that you wrote is called America's Archaeology Data Keeps Disappearing Even Though the Law Says the Government is Supposed to Preserve It. So let's talk about this a little bit. Can you first summarize the article for us in your, in your words?
0: Well, basically, um, the article is intended to say, look, we're spending vast amounts of money collecting wonderful uh, archaeological data that has tremendous ability not only to tell us about the past, but to help inform, I think, uh, present-day issues. However, those data are almost completely inaccessible to other researchers, never mind the public. And today, 10 years ago, we didn't have the tools to really make that data widely available and easily accessible, but today we do. And I think we need to move to a situation where the data, especially the data that are created with public money, need to be made accessible and uh, preserved for the long term, as I think the law requires.
1: Yeah, and when you say data, I want to have you clarify that for us because some people, of course, that are listening to this podcast are thinking uh, the 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 route of thinking always goes towards looting and damage, and they say, okay, so when you say data, do you mean all the data? Do you mean you know? Uh, certain sites we can see all the data, but on other sites we can only see, uh, you know, maybe artifact or feature data or the uh, description data, but not locational data, things like that. Um, What are you generally referring to when you say data?
0: Well, when I say data, I mean all the data. I mean that the digital data in this case, Mm -hmm. Um, the documents, the digital representations of documents, uh, data, archaeological databases or spreadsheets, uh, images, uh, digital images that we've got, Now, how you preserve them, I mean, I think all of that needs to be preserved. What we make accessible is a slightly different question. Uh, There's different ways of doing that. But in TDAR, the Digital Archaeological Record, what we do and what we recommend is if there are, we have two kinds of of files, ones that are confidential and ones that that are open. The open ones, anybody can go on the web. You get access, actually Google indexes them. You can get them however you want. Where reports or databases have locational information, what we suggest doing is uploading two versions. One is a redacted version in which that locational data is removed, and then a, a full version that's only available with explicit permission of the person or agency that uploaded it. So we are very attuned to the problems of uh, disclosing confidential site locations. And that's actually a legal requirement that we not do that. But mm-hmm. by allowing the person who uploaded or uh, is responsible for the report or the database to give permission, other people who have uh, the right credentials and a reason to get the data can get the full full, full versions.
1: Okay. And what does TDAR consider to be the right, the right credentials?
0: Well, what we've done so far is to say, it's that, that's, we don't decide that what TDAR has is the, the ability for the person who did the upload to manage who can have access. I mean, if they want to give somebody, you know, one of their colleagues that's working on the same project, write access to their data, they can do that. They could also give temporary access and say, you know, some graduate student writes them and says, you know, I'd like to get access to this particular data set. That person can go into TDAR and say, give this email address, you know, a uh, 30-day or a 10-day, I forget what it is, access, read access to this particular file if they determine that that's appropriate. I mean, one of the things we've considered is whether agencies would be interested in an option to work with the registered professional archaeologists to say, if you're an RPA, you could get you know access to certain resources that people would give blanket access to RPAs. We haven't implemented that yet, but right now it's really up to the person doing the uploading to decide who gets access. We don't make that decision.
1: Now, what, what if, uh, I mean, this isn't a podcast about TDAR, but it's actually really important <laughs> to have on this podcast. What if, what if somebody uploads a bunch of data to, to TDAR from a, from a project and then dies in a car accident the next day? How, how, does, how does that get handled if they no longer have access to their account and, and giving access rights?
0: Yeah, that's a, a, another problem that we've worried about. I mean, what we um, are trying to do is get... Well, in some cases, to have a a kind of um, meta owner of the data. So if it's you know you know the data manager at ArizonaBLM or gov or something you know where mm-hmm. where you could do that. We haven't implemented. We have something. Uh, I think for essentially, well the the data set creator can will put in or can put in and an organization that they're affiliated with we haven't totally dealt with the succession problem although we are trying to work with people on that uh Mm -hmm. and um but that's that is a real issue
2: well let's um let's back this up again to the uh to the article that that starts this discussion and that uh we we discussed as we said all last uh, episode and we're happy to have you on here to discuss with us directly what inspired this what was the uh it feels like it was in response to something pressing or something that happened recently, and it's interesting that it was picked up by PBS. Uh, could, you, uh, could you explain to us what, what was the impetus for writing this article, and uh, how did you get it, uh, somebody at PBS, to take interest in it? Um,
0: well, what, what happened, I mean, I've been thinking this for a long time. What stimulated the article was uh, the Arizona State University PR office, I forget what they call, Media Relations Office, like that of many other universities, It has a relationship with this uh, online journal called uh, The Conversation. And so the conversation people, I think, had, and I don't know their own history, but I think they had read about digital data being lost. They contacted the ASU people saying, do you have anybody who could comment on this? And I had, because of some expertise that they thought that I had, They contacted me, the ASU people contacted me and said, do you have anything from archaeology that might be interesting for this? And so I wrote a little short uh, couple of paragraphs saying this is what I would say if I were doing this. And the conversation came back and said, yes, we're interested in having you write that. Would you do it? And so I worked with their staff to write it. And then uh, they do everything open access uh, with Creative Commons licenses. And so anybody can pick it up. And PBS, I, I didn't have anything to do with PBS picking it up. They chose to do that themselves.
1: Okay. And who is the audience, the intended audience for this article? Who did, who did you hope would read this and gain something from it?
0: I mean, the intended audience is a broad one. I, they give you statistics back. And according to the conversation dashboard I have, 19,000 people have clicked on the article and presumably mm-hmm. read at least part of it. What I'm hoping to do in part is to generate uh, is if I think some policymakers uh, read it and to generate perhaps some public sentiment that, oh, yeah, we should be doing that, that could speak to either directly or indirectly to the agency people who are in a position to do something about this. So, I mean, the, the indirect audience was intended to be the policymakers. The sort of direct audience was really the general public as well as professionals.
1: How do you personally address the the situation of I mean right in the title of article you say you know the government is is supposed to preserve this according to the law, it's supposed to preserve data but i mean i I work in Nevada, you work in the desert southwest, you know we we both work with the BLM a lot and We know who's working at the BLM. I mean, I know who's working at the BLM district offices where that I deal with. They're usually friends and colleagues that were shovel bombs or something. And they finally got these, you know, these government jobs and now they're in there and they're they're really struggling under mountains and mountains of paperwork and organizational problems and and all these other things. They may have a mandate to to preserve these in a certain way. But I mean, how do we really go about addressing that problem uh, with it being so, so huge and multifaceted? You know what I mean?
0: well, I, I actually don't think it's so hard. i think I think the uh, legacy data are a harder problem, sure. But if we take what if we said, if you in every scope of work for a uh, survey or excavation, you have a clause that says the digital data from this project will all be deposited in a responsible digital repository. Mm-hmm. That's a perfectly just like you, I mean, it's basically just the same thing as saying, the artifacts that you excavate need to be put in a reasonable uh, uh, physical repository. Just the same kind of requirement that you have there. I think the law not only authorizes that, it requires that they uh, do that. The the project cost doesn't go up. You may spend, you know, one or two or three percent of the project budget doing digital curation, uh, which is far cheaper than physical artifact curation, of course. Uh, But I think that trade-off is well worth it. So I don't think it increases, you know, other than changing their boilerplate scope of work, I don't think it's any work at all for them. And what we found is that agencies uh, that we've worked with uh, on legacy data, they use TDAR uh, in this case for an organizational tool. So their, all their offices have access to all of those reports. And uh, we find often that the government agencies themselves don't have copies of the reports that they authorize. Once they get them up on TDAR, then they can use them uh, some of the DoD installations, the they have relatively few archaeological staff. Although they do are responsible for a lot of archaeology, they one archaeologist may be responsible for several bases. But all this stuff is on TDAR so they can get at it wherever they are.
1: And does does TDR enforce any sort of archae- uh, any sort of data standards or types for data? Like, I mean. I I can't imagine somebody would want to upload a bunch of Word documents, uh, of site records, or something like that, because who knows how long a Word document is going to be readable for, right? So, um, but does TDAR allow that, or do they enforce a certain type?
0: We have a limited number of uh, data formats that we'll accept. I mean, they include, they actually include Word, uh, they include PDF for documents, uh, and just plain ASCII Mm -hmm. Um, for images. uh, There's, again, a few. And what we do is, is as we migrate, so we take, we always will keep the original copy of the database or uh, word document or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, but we move it into a preservation format immediately if it's not in a preservation format. And then, as those formats themselves change, then it's our responsibility to migrate uh, each of those files to an updated uh, version that's readable. Uh, today, so that's the, the accessible version. That's interesting. So that's the, and that's what a digital repository needs to do, or otherwise this stuff becomes uh, becomes unreadable. So, I mean, for that reason, we've restricted the number of uh, different file types that we accept, just for that reason, so we can have some chance of of keeping those things alive. You know, and some of the more challenging things are things like uh, which we're not taking right now, or things like lidar and so forth, which are becoming more important, but the formats are. I mean, to do those in preservation mode are are very difficult because a lot of them, uh, 3D things are, you know, device dependent and stuff like that.
2: What do you consider to be uh, current good preservation formats?
0: Let's see. I'd have to look. I mean, I think for, I mean, we use, migrate things from, you know, the Microsoft, we have access. We're using Word, PDF. Uh, it turns out PDF is a lot harder, uh, worse as a preservation format than you'd think. So we use PDFA for the for the PDF documents. The Word ones, we, we migrate forward. For databases, we'll also deconstruct them into CSV files mm-hmm. so that we can get at them in the long run. Uh, that doesn't preserve everything, but it's better than nothing. Right. And then I think we're doing JPEGs and I think... Uh, And TIFFs for sure. I don't, I actually don't know all the details on which image formats we're taking other than those two.
2: No, that's fine. I didn't actually mean to put you on the spot to ask too specifically what kinds of formats uh, we we need to have. It just this is a topic that we touch on quite frequently, where we say you know make sure that your your file formats aren't totally proprietary. If they are, you can export them in some way that somebody down the road will be able to read them. We talk about refreshing our data file formats. It's nice to hear that uh, that you've taken all that into account yourself.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I'm curious. We we talk about pdfs is generally being better than some other formats because they are readable by you know multiple devices and over over long spans of time what are the issues you mentioned pdfs has some issues can you think of anything that you can mention to our listeners
0: well you know that's uh, you really should talk to one of our technical people yeah I mean, it partly that you can embed all this stuff in you know straight documents i think are not much mm-hmm. of a problem but you know you start putting images in And then you've got these PDFs that are actually compilations of multiple PDFs Mm -hmm. and there's a bunch of different flavors. And I've heard this both from our technical people and from the archaeology data service uh, people in England, that the PDFs actually can be challenging in the long run. Mm. I mean, in the short run, they're pretty easy, but in the long run, they're pretty challenging. I don't think we have anything better, but (laughs) it's not as easy as I think most people, including me until recently.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, We're pretty close to a break. So instead of rather than going over, I'm going to call this break right here and we will come back and uh, continue talking about disappearing archaeological data and maybe what we can do to uh, stop it from disappearing with Dr. Keith Kente back in a second. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.archpodnet.com members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So, check out our memberships at www.archpodnet.com/members today and support archaeological education. That's www.archpodnet.com/members. Now back to the show.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
2: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, oh, oh,
0: O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts.
1: All right, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode ninety-two, and we are talking with Dr. Keith Kinte, and he wrote an article that has been floating around the uh, the interwebs called uh, "America's Archaeology Data Keeps Disappearing." even though the law says the government is supposed to preserve it. So what has the reception to this article been? You said in the last segment that it looks like over 19,000 people have at least clicked on the article and presumably read part of it. Uh, have you have you received much feedback on this, positive or negative?
0: I mean, there's a few comments on the Web. Some of them are a little uh, far out. Um, I've gotten quite a bit of feedback from people just in emails, you know, individual emails to me, you know, a lot of support primarily supportive ones saying, yes, this, I'm glad you did that. We need to do that. So I, I mean, mm-hmm. I've gotten quite a bit
1: of positive feedback on it. Okay. Any, any negative feedback on it? I can't imagine from archaeologists.
0: Well, there was one on the, that's on the, <laughs> it's always
1: one. the conversation website
0: who said it. we don't have a problem in Arizona. It's, it's all taken care of, which I think is not true. I think there's a bit of chip on the
1: shoulder with that. Right, right. I think every state and probably every agency has some level of complexity and problem in dealing with preserving data, if not just the sheer volume in dealing with that. Even if they have a way to take it in, the sheer volume is always a problem, you know, expansion, things like that. I've got a question I work for, and we run the ads for this company on this podcast all the time, but I work for a company called Wild Note, and uh, we have created a platform for collecting digital, archaeological, and other environmental data, and then turning that into you know different exports and things like that. What would you tell somebody like me, working with a company like this and, and having the developers in my ear, what would you tell somebody who's developing something like that or collecting data digitally in the field about collecting data in the field? And let me clear that up just a little bit. What kind of best practices do you think people can have when they're collecting data digitally?
0: I think there's a lot of things. I mean, I think, you know, the way the world is, we need to think about archaeological workflows from, mm-hmm. you know, the design of the project and the, uh, the way the data are collected before any data are collected, you know, clear through the ongoing project, you know, to the time that it is fully finished and put to bed. Um, I think uh, there's a publication that's online. Uh, there's also a print version of "Guides to Best," sorry, "Guides to Best Practices for Digital Archaeological Data" that we did jointly with the Archaeological Data Service in uh, England.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I think collecting the data. I think sort of at the highest level, collecting the data with the notion that somebody else might want to look at it and. Uh, Including with the data, the information that somebody needs to properly interpret it. It sounds obvious, but I think people, you know, get in a rut or in a groove where you know they know what they're doing, they know what report they're going to write, they have somebody who uh, works on the analyses, and it's done. But I think a lot of times that's not done with the with goals beyond getting the project properly done, and that may be done quite well. But I think being able to have data that lives on requires some additional thought. In particular, you know, what I'm sure you guys have talked about with metadata. I mean, Mm -hmm. and to me, the sort of biggest question is what information, and I think the problem is biggest with with databases. You know, you'd hope that documents are relatively self-explanatory. But with databases in particular, what would a reasonably competent archaeologist need to know to use this data in a responsible way. For example, in many cases, uh, databases include the data that were collected, but they don't in the database themselves say anything about the sampling strategies. You know, was stuff right. screened? Was it not screened? Was every third bucket not screened? You know, what? how was the data collected in a way that would, infect your, that would affect your interpretations if you're looking at stuff that screened versus not screened or partially screened? How does that affect things? Well, that often doesn't get recorded in the database or associated with the database. And somebody who was unaware of that would probably misinterpret the results of an analysis. So I think you know, keeping in mind how it would be used in the future is is tricky, um, but it's something we need to spend more time and energy on.
1: Yeah, that, that goes along with something that's always been a pet peeve of mine is site records. And, and when you write down different interpretations on site records, say, Uh, You know, a lot of people use like a five-stage biface system when they're talking about bifaces, or they'll say tertiary, secondary, and primary in relation to flake size or flake cortex amount. But therein lies the problem: how do you know what methodology was used to come up with these terms? Unless you put it on the site record, and and the argument is, well, it's it's in the report in the methods section. I was like, well, you you can't assume that the report and the site record are always going to be in the same location. You know, and just like your database, you can't assume the report where they probably say what methods are used to construct the database. The report's not there anymore. It's just a database.
0: (laughs) Right. And what we try to do in TDAR is prompt people. I mean, we don't, I'm sure there's, I mean, there are things I know like sampling strategies that aren't explicitly asked for, but we try to add a table by table and column by column of the data set ask mm-hmm. people to document things or provide references to what they're doing. We don't require that everybody do everything all the time, but we try to give people the opportunity to put pretty complete metadata with their databases. I mean, same thing with images. If you don't say what the image is, it doesn't, you know, if you don't have something to do with it, um, most of them are not very helpful.
2: <laughs> indeed, all right, so Keith, you've uh, you've written this article. It's obviously it's not a one-off. you've been working uh, around issues of uh, data collection and data preservation for quite a long time. You've gotten some reception, <laughs> unfortunately, I saw some of the uh, the comment thread and I don't think we have to worry about archaeologists hiding data because we don't want to show the giants, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that you got some serious feedback on it and hoping that you continue to get some. What would be the best kind of outcome do you see from, uh, from a public face to, uh, to this problem of uh, disappearing archaeological data?
0: Well, I think the best outcome is what I mentioned earlier, which would be for the agencies. Uh, this could happen at different levels, at a, at a district office or a state office or nationally to take those responsibilities seriously and start to implement requirements for digital curation for the data that they're responsible for or authorize the collection of. I think that's a pretty easy step, I think to then, I think once people start doing that and we start at least moving the newly created data into that stream, I think people will see uh, even more utility than they anticipated from that, Mm -hmm. uh, partly for their own record keeping and because it really does make it available, and they, it's other people will find it when they're doing context studies or uh, just doing background studies for the next project going on. And then I think, you know, we're still faced with the problem of we've got you know 100 years, and especially the last 50 years of data that have been collected, and there's a lot of digital data in there. Getting that is, is a more difficult problem that we didn't address earlier, just because that costs real money. That's not there for the ongoing projects. There's money there. You know, there's a question about how you allocate it, but there's money to do them. Mm-hmm. But for the legacy data, I think that's going to, I think that is a responsibility. I think that's going to be a, a harder challenge because people are going to have to decide that it's worth it. And I think it's partly incumbent on archaeologists and especially people who are uh, concerned about uh, the bigger picture to, to say, well, Can we really learn from it i think you know some of these synthesis efforts we have to you know put our money where our mouth is and really show that this benefits people and it can benefit people uh in terms of uh, public policy maybe at the top level but also just in terms of bureaucratic efficiency at lower levels Uh, i think it can save agencies money just by simplifying some of their own processes and so forth but i think that's that's going to be a much uh, harder problem to solve uh if we can start with the new data with uh, scope of work or similar kinds of requirements um, i think that's pretty easy and that's where i'm hoping this will go
2: okay well i like that you're, you're breaking it down between you know legacy data which is its own can of worms and new data uh, one thing i'd worry about uh, going forward is finger pointing uh, archaeologists pointing to the preservation offices saying how come you're not doing this preservation offices pointing back to the archaeologists saying how come you're not um, you're not making this easier for us to do properly which side of this who do you think bears the onus of responsibility to uh, make sure that this happens properly uh, amongst us professionals
0: well, i think i think the onus is primarily on the uh, the agencies the, the individual the agencies that are authorizing or permitting or paying for the work I think the crm firms are in a bind because they on the one hand uh want to be responsible and they may all think that this would be a good thing to do but if they do it it's costing them money and they're not going to be competitive with their competitors who mm-hmm. are not doing it and saving that money so i think to the extent that i mean i understand firms having to remain competitive or they're out of business um i i think with agencies, um, they can take on that responsibility for the ongoing projects uh, pretty easily. But I do think the onus, uh, the burden, really is there at the moment. You know, there's lots of things that would be good to do. Some of them are harder than others. This one seems to me to be a, a fairly easy one for the for the new projects, uh, and that's at least we won't be getting farther behind, which we're doing every day right now.
1: <laughs> hmm. Do Do you think to get the agencies to really uh, to really take this on uh, as a thing and and really enforce these standards, do you think the money is is already there? It's just not being used properly, or that it would take a you know, so to speak, act of Congress and a, and a some kind of vote to allocate more funds towards doing this.
0: Oh no, I don't think it takes any act of Congress, or even uh, I don't think it it's bureaucratically difficult. I think it really mm-hmm. is just. Uh, individual offices, or preferably at higher levels, them saying, oh, well, we should just put this in our scope of work similarly. I mean, it's some of the same uh, regulations that require uh, the, I forget what the, the what the federal uh, curation regulations, they also apply to digital data explicitly. So, you know, there's authorization for them to do this. And I think, you know, they've got a, a, a budget for a contract project that they're doing today. And I think it's worth, just like we, I think it's worth money to curate the physical artifacts i think it's worth some much smaller fraction of the money to curate the digital artifacts of the data of the project
1: yeah that's really interesting talking about enforcement because i I had a conversation with a with an agency archaeologist at a high level position here in nevada a few years ago and they're no longer in that position somebody else is in that job now but I had a conversation with them about this, and I was curious because you know most of Nevada is is BLM land. So if you're going to do archaeology in Nevada, you need a BLM permit. And I said, how often do you guys pull BLM permits from a company or suspend it or something like that for infractions, archaeologically related infractions, whether it's something in the field, something that was done improperly or improperly turned in deliverables and and you know data formats and things like that. And they said almost never. Like in the history, this person had been there like 20 years. There's like one. Permit was pulled from an archaeological firm. And yet they all admit that when site records are turned in, reports are turned in, often the reports are not in this in the format listed in the guidelines. Site records aren't missing information. The GIS data is not complete. It's missing information or it's in incorrect formats. And they usually just deal with it. That's what they said. They usually just deal with it <laughs> and they don't, there's no going back to the firm and say, no, we're not going to accept this. Uh, you know, how do we, do you have any idea how we can maybe combat that problem? Do you hear of stuff like that happening down where, where you're at?
0: You know, I'm not too much involved at that level. What you said yeah. doesn't surprise me. I was uh, long, long ago uh, was at the Arizona state museum, part of the university of Arizona and, and was dealing, I was really the main person who issued permits and so forth. I think that the, I think that sort of thing is always going to be a problem. Um, You know, we have a similar problem with National Science Foundation grants. Now, people have, and NEH grants too, you have to put a data management plan in there. But those are not very effectively enforced, I think, except that if reviewers go back and look and say, well, you know, I reviewed this person's last proposal and they said they were going to make this data available and they haven't then it's, there's a, you know, maybe not getting funded in the future. I think the agencies could do some of that, uh, perhaps more easily than they can, you know, deny permits. But if you say, well, you know, do you meet the minimum qualifications? I think that's going to, I think it will be a problem, but I think uh, there could be some ways to address that. And if, if those you know, if 80 if we get 80 percent compliance, um, that's a whole lot better than, you know, zero percent compliance.
1: Uh, what do you think the public can do about this problem? Is there anybody they can contact or call? I mean, this article was not written for archaeologists in, in, a, in a private forum that only archaeologists can see. So what, what would you expect the public to get out of this as a message to take home?
0: You know, I would certainly be happy if people would write their senators and congressmen saying, what are we doing about this? And those people, especially people on like the energy and resources committees, can start calling up the people in the interior agencies or in DOD or whatever saying, well, why aren't we doing this? You know, this is our public money. We care about the past. You know, I think if we can generate some pressure uh, on on the agencies, either by way of Congress or directly, if people talk to the agency people directly, I don't think there's any sort of ill will here. I don't think it's conspiracy. unlike a couple of those comments suggested, (laughs) Uh, but you know, it's, you know, it's just another bureaucratic step and people are too busy, but I think it's just something that's important enough that we need to get on it.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a lack of, it's a lack of resources in some cases, but I think you hit the nail on the head with CRM firms. It's a lack of, you know, anything, anytime they have to spend extra money, even a few dollars here and there, reduces their competitive advantage on an already tight margin industry. And that therein lies the problem. So
0: you want to level the playing field with with the CRM firms and the
1: agencies can do that, which they can't, which the firms can't do individually. For sure. They're just going to compete for the, for the lowest, lowest bids. Okay. Well, uh, we're just about out of time, Keith. Is there anything you want to say about this article or this topic that we haven't asked you about?
0: Um, I don't think there's anything individual. I'll, I'll send you uh, a copy of the legal analysis that really shows where the legal requirements are. And you can put a put a link to that on your website if you like. Absolutely. People, people, I mean, I'd hope that agency people might be interested in looking at that. This was done by a legal firm uh, mm-hmm. in Washington to sort of say, what are the federal requirements for the curation of digital uh, archaeological data?
1: okay well we will certainly include that in our show notes and uh and of course the original link to this article and again thank you keith for coming on the show and talking about this thanks
0: oh thank you for giving me the opportunity i appreciate it pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block
1: Okay, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 92, and this is the App of the Day segment. So I, I was going through our list of apps, Paul, that we had talked about, and I had a few things on the list that, that I've been meaning to talk about, and I can't believe I haven't mentioned this app, and um, it's uh, it's something I use subconsciously sort of all the time, and it's called Blotter, B-L-O-T-T-E-R, and we'll have a link to Uh, To at least the iTunes Apple version in the uh, in the store here. I'm not actually sure that it works on other computers, but it definitely works with Apple computers. And what blotter is, is it's basically ties to your calendars on your computer. And it puts an overlay on your desktop background, whatever desktop background you have of this transparent calendar and you can, you can invoke the calendar and make it not transparent, uh, just by clicking on the the menu bar icon, but you can also do different things. Like, uh, you can have your reminders over there. And if you keep like a to-do list on your reminders, then all you got to do is, uh, like on, on an Apple machine, you can four finger expand on your trackpad on the modern machines and make all your windows go away for a minute and then quickly see your calendar rather than trying to find the calendar app or turn it on or something like that. You can just see this this thing, and so every time I'm, I'm opening a new screen or doing something like that, I see my calendar sitting right there, and I use my calendar extensively. Like if it's if it's not on my calendar, it's it's simply not going to happen. And uh, I mean, I miss I would miss appointments all the time if they weren't on my calendar, and and sending me alerts. So the fact that I'm constantly referring back to it, and maybe when I have. Uh, I've got two screens on my my office system. And then, you know, you have different workspaces that you can scroll between. So when you add two screens times the number of workspaces I've usually got, I'm scrolling back and forth with that's like eight to 12 screens that something could be on. Right. And all I have to do to see my calendar rather than just kind of find it is just look at my desktop and there it is. And it's pretty handy. I really like it. There's a, there's a lot of customizability you can do to it. I have it take up the entire desktop screen. You can have it take up a custom size of screen or a small portion of your screen or something like that if you really wanna see your background. Cause it will obscure your background a little bit, your desktop background, whatever you have. But I don't think it's obtrusive and I love seeing it. And it's a, it's a fantastic little application that just runs in the background, starts up with my computer. Like I said, I got so used to having it, I didn't even realize it was another application <laughs> until I saw it <laughs> in the list here. It's just something that exists like my operating operating system does, and, and I I really enjoy it. So I would say check that out. Uh, I think it's free. Uh, if it's not free, it does not that much money because I wouldn't have paid a ton of money for this thing. So, yeah, definitely check that out. We'll have that link in the show notes. What do you think about that, Paul? Sound like something useful?
2: Uh, it wouldn't be uh, for me personally. Just um, I don't have. I've mentioned before I use spaces uh, oh, on yeah, my computer, yeah. right? So I, if I want a calendar, I've got it over on the next space, and I and I just mm-hmm. swipe over to it. Um, I, or in the early days of OS X, there was a oh, a system preference. I can't remember the name of it now. They would do something similar. It wouldn't. It wasn't specific to calendars, but you could run different scripts, mm-hmm. um, like Unix scripts, and it would. Put the output in a semi-transparent or translucent box on your desktop behind everything uh, now i use that quite a bit and i probably use that with a, a calendar just a static calendar so you could see the days of the month um, but nothing like this it would actually pull from your calendars is this tied into your iCal calendar on your uh, on your mac or can it pull in from various uh, online calendars like google calendar
1: you know i th- i think it can pull in from other calendars but it works best with the um, the native calendar app on my Mac. You know, that's what it's designed to, to really work well with. Hmm. Um, but to your point about, you know, your calendar is always up because you use spaces. I use spaces too because you, you told me about it. Or spectacles. I use spectacle. Oh, the spectacle. I love, spectacles. To, to, I love that yeah. one. Yeah. I use that because you recommended it and uh, I use it extensively now. And then let's talk about all the apps we use here right now. So I I use Spectacle, but then I also use uh, just like Apple Automator to create the app that I mentioned uh, a few episodes back. Just I called the app Start My Day and that loads up all the Uh, programs that I want to start my day with, including my calendar. And then, unfortunately, it just loads them sort of randomly on the screen. And then I have to organize them. And Mm -hmm. and I always have the calendar, you know, in the lower right-hand corner of my left screen. So I do know where it's at at all times. But where Blotter comes in handy for me is I'm constantly, you know, delete, you know, closing some windows, opening new programs, going to a new space, doing custom things. And maybe I, maybe the calendar screen is just not in focus right now. Maybe it's not even up right now because it's in a different hidden space, right? And I've got to go back to that sort of home space to see the calendar. But I use my calendar so much and I need to see it so often that, you know, maybe I haven't looked at it in an hour. Maybe I haven't been over on that end of the computer in a while. And but I'm on a blank screen and I just need to open a finder window and do something. Well, I can quickly see my calendar right there and it's saved my ass a few times where maybe an appointment got put on that. I didn't have a reminder for and an appointment on my calendar without a reminder set up that buzzes my watch or my phone is just as good as not being there at all. (laughs) So, you know, but, but blotter has saved my ass sometimes when that's happened because I'll, I'll then just, I'll catch it out of the corner of my eye. You know, it it has a line like your calendar normally does that shows you what time of day it is. Mm -hmm. So you know where you're looking and you can, uh, uh, one of the things I like about blotters, you can organize it to have, it shows you seven days at a time, but you can say, I want to see a week that starts on Monday or starts on Saturday or starts on Sunday, whatever you want. Or you can just have the first day on the left is the current day. So, it shows you today plus the next six days uh, hmm. at all times. So, and I have it on that view because when I am just glancing at it, because it is kind of in the background, I know today is always on the left. It's always the left column. I don't have to look at it and spend any more brain power, you know, even though it's just a few seconds. I don't have to spend any more time. I just quickly glance over there when I get rid of all my windows. Yep. Okay. I'm on track for today. Everything's good. There's no surprises. And I keep moving on. And that's that's why I like it. It's just one of those really subtle applications that that really gives me a lot of benefit. And sometimes I, I like I said I forget it's even there. It's but it's but it's still a benefit to me. So okay, well I think we've killed that calendar app to death. So uh, Paul, what have you got for us today?
2: Okay, so I've got is. Um the fact that I didn't have anything new to talk about, so uh, I'm just talking about something that uh, we've all known about uh, for a while, and um, and I had just used it recently, uh, so I wanted to remind people that this exists if they don't already know about it. So what I'm talking about is the Keynote app on iOS. And uh, I don't actually use the Keynote app for developing Keynote presentations or anything like that. I use Keynote on my Mac, and I like it best between uh, Google Slides and, powerpoint and keynote i prefer keynote and have used it uh, for years uh there i give a number of different talks uh basically two different kinds of lectures there'll be the lecture i do when i'm teaching a course um and i'll have my keynote up and i'll use a clicker and i'll have a stack of papers because i've got a million different points i need to make and i've got um and i've got facts and figures i want to give to the students afterwards Mm -hmm. i uh, i bundle that up as a PDF and put it up on the Moodle so that they can <laughs> they can see it because otherwise <laughs> it's just too much information at once for anybody to keep track of uh writing things down uh but that's one way I do it the other way is what I've done over the last couple of weeks where I give more uh, informal talks you know so if I give uh, a lecture to the general public and I'm not trying to just give them a fire hose of different facts and figures uh i try to make a more lively presentation and i want to be able to roam around a lot and i want to be able to make a lot of eye contact and i want people to raise their hands and i take questions and move along like that get interrupted it's, it's a much more fun way for me to work and so i use the keynote presentation on my mac connected to to a presentation uh, to a projector and then I use the uh, the remote function of key, Keynote in uh, on the iOS device on my phone in order to uh, to scroll through the, uh, the the slides. The particular mm-hmm. view that I use there, I've got a few bullet points at the bottom uh, my presenter's notes of maybe a term I want to specifically use or just a couple things so I remember what order I wanted to mention a couple points that pertain to the the slide given, um, and so. I use it mostly as a clicker in these cases, in this kind of a, a lecture. And I look down every now and then, I'll glance at it quickly if I need to just remind myself where I am, where where I'm at, what place in this lecture I'm at. You know, so it's very mm-hmm. different style of lecturing than, uh, than when I have a class that I'm teaching. Uh, and I find that for that kind of lecture, it really, really is a helpful tool. Um, I'm going to give a little tip for this is that sometimes it doesn't connect up to uh to keynote on the mac very reliably so in those cases what i do is i just have my mac create its own wi-fi network and i then attach to that wi-fi network on my phone uh, and then they have no trouble at all seeing each other Uh, yeah so the lectures i've been giving over the last uh, couple weeks is at the school i work the uh, there's a big mesopotamia curriculum in the fifth grade and every year I get invited up into the fifth grade classrooms to go talk about archaeology in Mesopotamia. I've worked in Mesopotamian sites, never in Iraq, unfortunately, but in Syria and Turkey. And, um, and so I talk to the students about how the sites are formed, about what archaeologists do in mesopotamia do how they go about their work what they're looking for i bring in some tools i bring my mud brick pick i threaten to kill a kid it's you know it's a lot of fun it's a it's a kind of silly but uh, i think i give them a lot of good information but i couldn't give that kind of a talk with a lot of back and forth and a lot of interaction with the audience if i didn't have a tool like this uh like the remote that i have on the mm. keynote on ios yeah there we go do you use anything like that
1: i do um and and i've used keynote for that In that exact same way um, on iOS, because I I really like uh, it it works well if you're just using it to tap through your slides. Um, You know, if you're just holding your phone and tapping through your slides, although if you tap in the wrong spot, you can do some other things. And if I'm not mistaken, it's been a little while. It actually has a little laser pointer feature um, on there as well. Yeah. And but then also. Uh, If I'm also not mistaken, if you go into landscape view, you can actually see like a presenter view a little bit where you're um, you've got the next up slide and things like that. I think if you're doing that, though, you may as well just have a computer in front of you, because if you're trying to walk around and then glance, you know, stare at your phone, trying to figure out what you're doing, it's not going to work. But I've used the remote function before on my watch as well, as we were talking about before the recording. And uh that's a little hard to get used to, uh, obviously way less functional than the phone, really just intended for advancing through slides but again, if you don 't know what you're hitting and what you're doing in a nice fluid motion, you can really screw up your presentation and and of course, in presentations, you don't want to take away from the presentation itself with technical difficulties we've all seen that many times so yeah it's it's a good it's a good add on to uh to some of those practices and if you want to use that, you have iOS devices but let's say you don't know how to use Keynote or don't want to, Um, Keynote will import PowerPoint. And I don't know about Google Slides. It probably doesn't work with Google Slides, but... You can export a PowerPoint from Google Slides and then import that into Keynote. There you go. There you go. It's a good workflow. I'm sure none of your fonts or, or formatting would get screwed up doing that. Oh, no. <laughs> it must be just flawless. I can't imagine anything possibly going wrong with that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. So I think that's uh, about anything else on, on Keynote and stuff like that, Paul? No. Again, it's just, um, you know, depending on the kind of presentation
2: you're giving, if you have something with a lot of text that you have to read through, it's not the right tool for the job. Right. Um, if you're just going through the slides and you have everything memorized, maybe you can use a regular pointer um, a laser uh, clicker and pointer. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to do something like what I'm doing where there's a lot of interaction and there are a lot of ways that the the thing can, that the that lecture can go sideways. Uh, but you want to have that little crib sheet right there so that you can quickly glance down, see what the slide is, and see the points that you need to make about that slide. Uh, then it works really
1: nicely. Yeah. Okay, so let's close out the last few minutes of this segment and talk about the current giveaway that we're doing. Uh, we mentioned on the last episode that we're, uh, Paul has generously donated uh, his... his his time and money to really right click buy now and change the address and send you a drone straight from Amazon. And he's got this one. So it's the, the Mediku M one mini drone. There's a link to it in the show notes. It's in episode 91 and I'll drop it in episode 92 as well. So go over and check that out. And, and the only thing we're asking for uh, between now and the next episode. So episode 93 is when we were hoping to announce a winner for this is Engage with us on social media or through email and basically, you know, Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. We're at ArcPodNet on each one of those resources. Uh, first off, follow us, of course, and then send us a message or put up a picture that says I want a drone or why you want a drone. What are you going to use one for? You know, something just simple, something really simple. But be sure to include uh, ArcPodNet, tag us in that post if you're doing it from your own, and then um, also maybe put hashtag Archaeotech in there. And you can also send me an email, Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and ask a question about a show or something else, or just say, hey, enter me in the contest. We're not picky.
2: And just so uh, the listeners know, this is not a drone that you're going to use to uh, take uh, beautiful aerials <laughs> of uh, of your excavation unit. This is a little three and a half inch across uh, toy drone. But what it's yeah. going to do is it's going to give you a good sense of how the controls work because I found that this one is uh, is just a blast to fly and it's really, really easy. So uh, if yeah. you want to just get your feet wet for no cost beyond just you know engaging with us for a little bit on uh, social media, uh, this is uh, as good intro as any, I think.
1: Yeah. And as we said last time, this is um, open to U.S. residents only just because it would cost three times the amount of this drone is worth to send this somewhere else in the country or in the world. So maybe we can come up with something for for the rest of the world later. But for right now, U.S. residents only. And, And also, you know, this drone, I'm looking at the description right now, it says it has headless mode. And Paul, you asked me about that one or two episodes ago, and I really knew shockingly little about what headless mode is. But I did some research on it, and I now know why I didn't know what headless mode really was. The reason is, is because as things get commercialized, of course, like, you know, drones, drones is just the new name for these things. Really, we're talking about RC aircraft and, you know, RC planes and and even RC helicopters have been around for a really long time. And but they were really because of the complexity of flying them. They were only open to a small sp- percentage of the population that really wanted to put the time and money into not only building it in, in a lot of cases, but then flying it, repairing it. You know, you're just an all-in-one mechanic shop. But as these things got cheaper, and 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 really, we don't need to worry about repairing it. Like, you're going to break this $17 drone at some point, but you're not going to care. You're not going to go buy parts for it. You're just going to buy a new one, right? So as that's come down, they've had to, as they do, make it easier or so they think easier for people to fly. So. One big problem with all radio controlled aircraft is that you are fixed and stationary and the thing that you're flying is moving. And when that thing is moving and you're using one of your sticks to go left and right, when that thing's coming towards you and you go left, the object, the aircraft goes right. And when you go right, the aircraft goes left because its orientation is always on the nose of the aircraft of what its left and right is. It doesn't matter what direction it's pointing in relation to you. Its left and right is in relation to its own nose. Well, when you put these things in headless mode, and this is really mostly open to what they call the toy class of drones, not the hobby grade, is if it's flying towards you, once you put it into headless mode, if it's flying towards you and you go left, it's going to go left, even though its nose is pointing towards you, or it's gonna go right. You know, because it knows what orientation it is. And from what my understanding is, you usually put these things in a stable hover with the nose facing away from you directly, like perpendicular to your body. And you're looking down the axis of it and then you engage headless mode. Now it has its orientation set and it knows what direction it's pointing regardless. So if it spins all the way around, it doesn't really know it's pointing at you, but it knows it's pointing the other way. And that left is now right and right is now left, you know, things like that. It's very complicated and my advice is, and and the advice of some of the articles I read was basically if you wanna get up into the bigger higher end drones, learn how to cross control. And that's what that's called. Learn how when the drone's coming towards you, if you go left, it's gonna go right. Just learn that. It's just muscle memory and you'll be fine because most of the higher end drones and even the mid grade drones do not come with headless mode and probably never will. So, uh, and if you ever wanna fly those first person point of view or FPV drones with with the goggles and the like the competition racing ones, those will definitely not have headless mode, although it kind of is because you're right in the drone. So anyway, that's headless mode in a, in a nutshell. And I would say play with it, but don't learn on it.
2: No, I would say don't even bother playing with it. Every time I've accidentally <laughs> put this thing in uh, headless mode, I, I, gets I don't know which way it's going. It just, it,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to calibrate it into headless mode the right way too. Like if it's pointing the wrong direction when you put it in headless mode, Oh, it's going to be And that's
2: precisely the problem. Every time I've done (laughs) that, I've done it by accident while it's going, you know, it's halfway across the room and it's going (laughs) diagonal to me. And now left isn't left. It's, uh, you know, 45 degrees
1: to the right. Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that causing huge problems. I've never flown a drone in headless mode. I looked at the small, cheap ones I've got at my Civil Air Patrol office and those don't even have headless mode. So I think that was something that came along in the last year or two maybe, and it's really started to become an option on the cheaper um, toy drones. So people, because people have a real hard time with cross-controlling, wrapping their head around it, but once you get it, you get it, you know, so. Well, uh, the important points. Small, cheap drone,
2: very easy to learn on. You're gonna want it because you're gonna wanna learn how to fly drones and you're gonna wanna tell us on social media why you wanna learn how to fly drones. And this is a great (laughs) little, uh, you know, intro for you before you move up to something bigger that you're going to be able to use uh, actually for archeological
1: data collection. Absolutely. Well said. Okay. So that's it for this show. Uh, again, we really appreciate Dr. Keith Kintak coming along uh, and and talking about that article. I really love getting to the bottom of some of these things from the people who are directly responsible for them. So um, if you happen to read any articles out there and, and and think we should check it out, and maybe we can get a hold of the author. Then uh, really let us know, and we'll do it. Paul, hope you uh, stay warm. Starting to get cold out here in Reno. I'm sure it is in New York.
2: Yeah, it's all rainy right now. Uh, we're recording this on the evening of election night, so um, that's right. I'd say get out and vote, but uh, but it's going to be a week and a half at the earliest before <laughs> anybody hears this, and uh, you miss the vote. So. Um
1: yeah if you're if you're listening to this it's time to come out of your bunker you know hopefully we all survived maybe it's not and uh maybe it's not yeah who knows who knows yeah you might you might come out into a apocalypse and and be in headless mode yourself so oh that's a bad joke no. anyway all right <laughs> all right well thanks everybody for listening again send in anything you can on social media about this drone thing and we'll send you a drone in uh in a couple of weeks one drone only please i'm not gonna send everybody a drone and uh Again, thank you, Paul, for joining me and for uh, for donating the drum. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you again.
2: Thanks for listening to the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archeotech. Contact us at Chris at com and Paul at lugal.com Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening.
1: This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective.
0: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at
1: archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to com slash members for more info.